Hi everyone, welcome to our first uh, session on uh, the new series, Born Identity. Uh, and this is week one, this is Born Ultimatum. You know, when we thought about what was going on in our country over this month, we thought, you know, we really want to connect with uh, what people in the UK are going to be talking about over the next three to four weeks. And we thought, well, Father's Day is on June the 19th. <laughs> on June the 12th, uh, it's the Queen's 90th birthday, the whole idea of monarchy and royalty. And of course, this month, everyone's going to be talking about the big issue of Europe. And we thought, how do we talk about these three things and connect them into a theme? And then we thought around the whole born identity idea. You know, Jason Bourne, if you've seen the film, Films. Anyone seen the films? Yeah, it's great films. This super spy who's forgotten his identity, doesn't know who he is. Uh, basically, then he just goes and kills lots of people. Really good family film. But it's a great film about identity. And identity is so important. If we don't know who we are, we'll have no clue in knowing what to do and how to live our lives. <clears throat> so that's what we're going to look at over the next three weeks. And today, we're going to look at the big issue of Europe. When it comes to the EU question, you know, and I'm not just talking about the EU question as, will England get out of the group stage in the Euro Championship? You know, will we ever win a tournament in my lifetime? No, when it comes to the EU question, there are profit of doom on both sides. My observation is that fear is a major tool being used to sway us by both sides of the debate. You know, the big issues seem to be the search for truth. Can someone give us the facts? Well, listen, and maybe you're asking this question as well. You say, look, just tell me what will happen exactly if we remain? What will happen exactly if we leave? Well, can I say, nobody can tell you that. <laughs> it's impossible to know. And yeah, there are all kinds of people predicting all kinds of things, but it's all often based on fear. It's very complicated for us to know what exactly will happen. Let me give you one window into the difficulty with this request. Let's just look at the laws that are made by the EU. Nick Clegg suggests that 14% of our laws are made by the EU. Nigel Farage states it's 75%. Who is nearer the truth? Depends what you mean by made. Do you mean influenced? Do you mean created? Do you mean formulated? It's a complex issue. But you know, the fear card is also being used by some Christians. And people have sent stuff to me and people have asked me, you know, what is God saying? And, and, and what, what, are, what are the prophetic people in the world saying? Well, can I just say... Whenever you try to link world events to the book of Revelation or certain parts of other books of the Bible, like the book of Daniel, it's a really dangerous thing to do. You know, I'm old enough to remember back in the 70s and the 80s when um, many people, many Christian stroke prophet, prophetic guys and girls were, were saying that the EU is definitely um, the, the beast that, that is mentioned in the book of Revelation, the woman that sits on the scarlet beast. Because the beast is described as having seven heads and ten horns. And there were ten countries in the European Union, so it must be the beast. <laughs> Problem is now there's 28. This is a dangerous thing to do. So when it comes down to the question, what does God think? Is there a Christian response? What would Jesus do on June the 23rd in the ballot box? Where is he going to put his cross? You know, his ex, where is he going to say? Well, I have to tell you, I'm not sure we can really know that. But... I want to help you this morning, so I am going to tell you today what you should do on June the 23rd at the European referendum. Are you ready? Here's what you should do. You should vote to leave or remain. Yep, that's it. You're really impressed by that, aren't you? The reality is, folks, I can't tell you what you should do. I don't think that there is a clear 
Christian position or there is a clear idea here of what would God do? What would Jesus do? I don't think we know that. The reality is there are great Christian leaders on both sides of the debate who are arguing for two completely different things. What we have to do is to think and to pray and then we go on June the 23rd and we have our say. You see, I think you should vote. I'm not saying this is the position of this church. I'm not saying that if you don't vote, you won't go to heaven. And of course, part of being in a democracy is that you can choose not to vote as well as choosing to vote. But I actually think you should vote. And I want to give you some reasons why. Firstly, voting recognises that we submit to a political system in our nation that's established by God. The Bible's clear, we're to pray for those in authority over us. And voting is part of that recognition that we submit to a political system. Secondly, voting recognises the equality of all people and their right to be heard. Thirdly, voting is one way we can speak into what is happening around us. Fourthly, voting is one way that shows we care about what happens to other people. You know, a lot of the debate is, is all around self-interest. What's, what's in it for us? What's best for us? And I understand that. But, you know, voting is one way that we show we don't just care about ourselves, but we care about other people as well. Voting is one way we can affect things. You know, don't, don't moan about something if you're not prepared to get involved in the process. And voting is part of the process. Voting is a privilege and a responsibility. Not everybody in the world has it. But can I say a final thing about this? Not voting is a form of voting. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was an amazing Christian leader who lived and who died in Germany uh, in the Second World War. Uh, and I'm not saying, can I say, before I say this, I am not comparing Nazi Germany to the European Union. So let me just take that one right off the table. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when, he was, when they were faced with the rise of Hitler and the rise of Nazism and fascism, he said this, all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to do nothing. Not voting is a form of voting. So, young people especially, are you registered to vote? You know, this impacts you more than most. Statistics show that uh, the biggest uh, demographic of people who vote will be the over 60s. But the reality is, this issue of Europe and the future affects you young guys more than it does any other generation. So if you're not registered to vote, you need to register really today, or it's Tuesday, by Tuesday the 7th. How you do it is you go onto the www.gov.uk and register. If you are registered to vote, please think and pray about voting. But maybe you say, but I don't know which way to vote. Well, I can't and I won't tell you that. That wouldn't be right. But what I can do is to point you to some great resources. And there's a church in Manchester, a great church called Audacious Church. Uh, and they, they put this website out. It's just coming up on the screen now. www.audaciouschurch.com forward slash referendum forward slash. If you go there, there's some great articles on both sides of the debate written by Christian MPs arguing for, for leaving, arguing for rem remaining. And then there's a little assessment tool at the end that you can use to fill in and it will kind of show you which way your heart and your mind is, is leaning. But you know, my other observation is that we need to know where our hope and security really resides. And I want to suggest that it's nothing to do with whether we're in, in or out of the EU. There is a bigger stage at work in our world. You see, whether... Um, we stay in or whether we go out, whether in a few months or years time, the two big great world leaders in our world will be Donald Trump and Boris Johnson. I don't know whether that will happen. OK, and that's freaking some of you out. I can see by your faces right now. But, you know, whatever happens politically, that all happens at this stage. 
There's a bigger stage, a higher stage where God sits and nothing that happens will phase or harass or bother or, or cause God to be anxious in any way. He sits above that. He's beyond that and yet he speaks into it. You know, I had a thought this morning, just came to me as I was in the shower actually. I thought, my thought was this, you know, our hope and our confidence doesn't rest in the cross that we put on a piece of paper in a ballot box, but it rests and resides in the cross that God put on a hill called Calvary. That's the issue. That's where our hope and our security is. We do not need to fear. You know, the biggest issue is not whether we leave or remain in Europe. The biggest issue is who are we? What's our core identity? Born identity is not whether we see ourselves as British or European or any other country in the world, but who are we in relation to who God says we are? One of my favourite stories, I've said it many times here, is um, again in the Second World War and as the Nazis were coming into Denmark, many of the Christian leaders went and knocked on the bishop's door. They, they were fearful, they didn't know what to do. They said, Bishop, we don't know what to do, what should we do? The Nazis are coming. And Bishop Henrik Kreimer, great wise man, he said this, don't ask what we should do, first ask who we are. When we know who we are, then we will know what to do. You know, our identity is one of the single biggest issues facing us, I believe, in our world. And it's an ultimatum. We must know who we are if we're to know what to do in this world. So I've got a question for you today, for all of you listening here in this room and maybe out on podcast as well. Who are you? Well, you are who your birth certificate says you are. There's some facts there. You are who others say you are, maybe. But you are who you think you are. You see, there's a voice that goes on in our head a continual dialogue that shapes and directs us that can also make us a slave to what that voice says. A guy called Seth Godin, an American business writer, he wrote this amazingly profound statement. He said this, People don't believe what you tell them. They rarely believe what you show them. They sometimes believe what their friends tell them, but they always believe what they tell themselves. That is so profound. You see, the average person has more than 60,000 thoughts a day and over 80% of those are negative. Have you ever looked in the mirror at the start of a day and as you've seen yourself in the mirror, there's a voice that's come in your head and it says this, doesn't matter what you put on today, you're not going to look good. You're too flabby, you're too skinny, you're too pale, you're too saggy. You ever thought as you head to work, it doesn't matter what I do today, nobody will appreciate it. I'll never be as good as so-and-so, so why bother? There's a voice and makes us a slave to what it wants to say. Ever thought things like this? Why did I do that? Or why did I say that? I'm so stupid. You know, there's a word to describe this, and it's called logorrhea. It means a pathological, incoherent talkativeness. Sounds like another condition that you can get medically as well. That's not that pleasant, and I think you can get to it, really. You understand that. Logorrhea. It's like a distortion pedal on a guitar that manipulates the sound. It manipulates the truth. So you hear something uh, different. You know, a guy called Stephen Furtick, great leader of Elevation Church in America, he said this, the voice you believe will determine the future you experience. The voice you believe will determine the future you experience. So here we get to the biggest issue, the ultimate question we need to vote on. Whose voice are we going to live our one and only life listening to? The voice of fear, the voice of uncertainty, the voice of negativity or the voice of God. You know, if you've seen the show, The Voice, we did a series on this just a year or so ago. Just a great show. And when the judge hits the button, 
you know, and the chair turns around and he looks at the singer that he's only heard through the voice. He's communicating, I want you, when he hits the button and turns around. But that moment when you watch the show and someone's singing their heart out and none of the four judges are going to press the button and at the end of the song, the person's left there just disconsolate and downhearted and dejected and no one's turned around. And what they've communicated by not hitting the button is, we don't want you. Nobody wants you. Well, let me say this to you today. The one who is sitting in the only chair that really counts has already turned round and the only one who has the power to give us true approval already has. God has chosen you. He cancelled the audition. He scrapped the interview. He ditched the exam. Our identity is rooted in who he says we are, nothing else. So now we can declare boldly, I am no longer, fill in the blank, I am, fill in the blank, I am no longer what the loggeria voice says in my head, I am who and what God says I am. And I confirm God's calling on my life when I affirm my identity in him. You know, this gets my vote. So today, what I want us to do to before we leave this place and before we enter this month of June and head into the Euro frenzy of the football and then the referendum, I, I, I want us to look at some of the things that God says we are and let's put our cross, let's put our X, let's put our mark by these things. Let, let, let's say no to that voice in our head and let's say yes to the voice of God. I want to show you the truth and ask you to vote or vote again today on this truth. Put your marker against these statements. And to do that, I want to turn to what I think is one of the greatest chapters in the whole of the Bible. This chapter is up there for me with Romans 8 and 1 Corinthians 13. It's an incredible chapter. It, it's, it's in the book of Ephesians and it's chapter 1. And Paul writes to this early church some incredible statements, some incredible truths of who they are. And I want to just rattle off now six of these for you today and then just to pray for you as we close our time together. So let's look in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3 to 4. Paul says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And here's the first statement. I am no longer random, I am chosen. Wow, what a great thing. Now this doesn't mean that God chooses some not to believe and some to believe. This is not like when some of us guys can remember this, when we were in the, in the playground at lunchtime and we all lined up and the two best footballers got to pick the teams and you know that moment when we're left at, right at the end and we think, oh, please don't let me be the last one or please don't let me be the one that you know, I have to stand there while the two captains say, oh, I had him last week, you have him, I'm not having him, you have him. Oh, horrible. We're not talking about that. See, this only comes into play when we respond to God. You see, salvation starts in the heart of God, not man. Nothing we do, it all comes from him. But as we respond to what he's done, to his work, so he chooses us, his will is that all be saved and all come to a saving knowledge of his love. And he chooses us not just from something, but to something, to his purposes. We are no longer random. We are not accidents. We are not mishaps. We are chosen. Fantastic. Secondly then, in verse 5, in love he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. And this doesn't just mean male sons. This is about being adopted as children of the, of, of, of the King of Kings. This is about being ch children of God. We sang in that incredible song that we sang this morning. 
You know, I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. You know, in this church, we talk a lot about adoption and fostering. We have so many families in this church who are adopting or have adopted and are fostering. But, you know, it's a, it's a biblical doctrine. Understanding who we are in our relationship with God, our born identity is that we are adopted. And so here's the statement. I am no longer rejected. I am accepted through adoption. You know, in the Roman world that Paul was writing to, there was a, a Latin statement, uh, a Latin phrase that said patria potestas, literally means the father's power. And the idea was that the father always had absolute power over his children as long as he lived. No matter what age the kids were, the father was always the father. Oh, oh for those days again, eh? But when someone was being adopted, they were coming out from under their old father and, and unto and under uh, the new authority of the new father. And adoption was a serious step. It involved the symbolic buying and selling of the child using copper and scales. Twice sold, then bought back. And on the third time, the magistrate would declare the adoption was legal and binding. And then the adopted father uh, would basically then take that son into his family. And what happened to the child who was adopted? Three important things. They left the power of the previous father. They came out from under the patria potestas of the old father and under the patria potestas of the new father. This is so important because the Bible says that before you and I became Christians, if you are a Christian, and I'm aware this morning that some of you might not be, but you know, we want you to know this is what it means to become a Christian and you can do that this morning. But when you give your life to Christ, you come out from under the old father. And the, I'm not talking about your earthly father, okay? I'm talking about the Bible says that we, before we're a Christian, we are under the authority of the, of the, of the, of the, of the father of, of this world, who is the devil, the enemy. And the Bible says that's darkness. This is why when Peter writes in 1 Peter 1 or 2, I think it is, he says, you know, now that you are a chosen people, you've come out from the darkness and you've come into the marvelous light. You've come out from the power of the previous father. You are no longer under his control. You are now under the control of your new father, your heavenly father, the father of light. That's amazing. Secondly, though, you leave behind all your debts and all your obligations. You're no longer a slave. You're no longer in bondage to any of those old things. You are set free. And then you assume all the rights and responsibilities of the new family as if you were a natural son. I love the story in the Old Testament, you know, of Mephibosheth. You know, he's the grandson of Saul. And Saul was the enemy of David. And when Saul died in battle with his son, Jonathan, Mephibosheth, who was the grandson, Jonathan's son, he was lame and disabled in both feet. And he was in fear for his life because the new King David, under the law of that day, would kill him because that's what they did. They wiped out all their enemies. But David sends for this little, this lad. And this lad shuffles his way into the palace and and David says, hey, come and sit around my table. And he sits around the table with David as if he was one of his natural sons, as if he was Solomon or Rehoboam or Absalom or, 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 or any of his sons or daughters. That's amazing. Salvation brings you into God's family, gives you a newborn identity. You are no longer rejected. You are accepted because you're adopted. Wow. Can we vote for that this morning, eh? Can we vote for that? Fantastic. Verse 7 in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. We have redemption through forgiveness. I am no longer a slave to guilt and fear. I am free and forgiven. You know, redemption is another big uh, theological word of the Christian faith. 
And redemption is taken from the world, the world of slavery. To redeem means to purchase and set free by paying a price. The idea in the Jewish faith as well, another idea to think about was in Jewish history, the, uh, the priest would bring a, a goat into the temple and, and basically they would um, pray over the goat and they would, they, they would literally uh, put all, symbolically put the sins and the, and, the, and the guilt and the fear of the people onto the goat. That's where we get the expression scapegoat. And then they'd send the scapegoat out of the temple into the desert. Literally, your sin, your fear, your guilt has left the building never to return. You are forgiven. You are no longer a slave to fear and guilt. You are free and forgiven. You know, my favourite story, which I think I've said it many times here, to be honest, over the years, but I can't find a better one that illustrates this, is a great story I read many years ago. And it's of a, of a, a young lad and his sister, and they go to their grandmother's for, to spend a week in the school holiday. And early on, um, in the week, the, the, the lad's out in the back garden, he's playing. And this was in the days when not every game had a screen and you actually played with something that didn't have an on and off button switch. I know that's amazing, uh, but here you go. And anyway, he's out in the back garden, he's got this catapult and he's shooting some stones at some tin cans, but he misses one of the tin cans and it hits his grandmother, one of his grandmother's pet ducks and kills the duck. I know, it's terrible, it kills the duck. Looks around, doesn't see anyone looking at him or seeing him, so he buries the duck, goes back in, forgets about it. But then at dinner time that evening, uh, grandmother says to the little girl, her granddaughter, hey, it's your turn to do the dishes. She says, oh no, it's okay. My brother, he's going to do it for me. He says, am I? She leans over and whispers in his ear, quack, quack. Ah, he says, she saw me. Ah, so he does the dishes. This goes on the whole week. She has him around. She has, she's leading him around by the nose. She has him the whole week. Finally, towards the end of the week, he can bear it no longer. He goes to his grand. He says, grand, grand, I've got to tell you something. Right at the start of my, of my week here, you know, I was out the back and I was, I was shooting you know, with my catapult, you know, because screens haven't been invented yet. So I was shooting with my catapult and I missed the tin can. I hit one of your ducks and I killed it and I buried it. And I'm so sorry. Will you please forgive me? She looks at him and she says, hey, I saw you do it. I've known all week you've done it, but the moment I saw you do it, I forgave you. Mm. But, she says, I was thinking to myself this week, how long are you going to let her make a slave out of you? What a great question and what a great illustration. And I want to say to you today, if you have been set free, if you've been redeemed, if you know Christ, if you've put your ex next to his cross that he's already done in your life, if you've chosen him, if you've responded to what he's done, you are no longer a slave to fear. You are no longer a slave to guilt. You are a child of God. You are free and forgiven. That is your born identity. Number four, verse nine. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. I am no longer excluded on the outside I am included on the inside because he has revealed his will to us. You know, me and Alison, my wife, we love watching uh, films that are thrillers and murder mysteries and whodunits and all that. But, you know, she always knows really early on who's done it. So frustrating. Sometimes I don't even know who's done it. Even at the end, when they tell you who's done it, I'm still like, huh? But, you know, there's something different about the whole experience when you're on the inside and you understand what's going on. It's not a mystery any longer. I think this is the problem for many of us with the EU question. It feels such a mystery. We feel so on the outside. We feel so excluded. 
But you know, when you're on the inside, when something's been revealed to you, we get it. And God has revealed to us who he is, who we are in relationship to him. We're on the inside, guys. We're included. We're not excluded. That's our identity. We're on the inside. And why has he done all this? Well, Paul says it here, according to his good pleasure. He has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has redeemed us. He has included us, not because he had to, but because he wanted to. Wow. You know, I was always told when I was a kid brought up in church that, you know, if you're a Christian, you have to love people, but you don't necessarily have to like them. Anyone ever heard that? Yeah, we've been using that a lot, haven't we? (laughs) See, I get it. The problem is with that, we then can think to ourselves, I wonder if that's the same for God. He has to love me. It's in his job description. But does he have to like me? And if I'm honest, I think most of us or many of us, we know God loves us. We're not quite so sure that he likes us. I want to tell you something today. God likes you. Not only does God love you, but God likes you. He is crazy about you. You know, when he looks at you, he's got like a, a picture of you in his wallet. He's got a picture of you on his, as his screensaver on his phone. He thinks he's crazy about you. And I know that's true because the Bible is full of instances where God says, I want to spend time with you. Come close to me. I'll come close to you. Come aside. Come with me. You know, spend. he wants to be with us because he likes us. He doesn't just love us. That's amazing. That should really fill us with a sense of identity today. Number five, we're getting there now. Verse 11 and 12. In him we were also chosen in order that we, and it goes on to say, might be for the praise of his glory. Listen to this. I am no longer worthless. I am valuable. You see, we have an inheritance. That's true. But also we are an inheritance. We don't just give him praise and glory. The Bible says we are his praise and glory. See, our worldview says you are what you do. But God's worldview, God's view is you are what I say you are and what you do flows out of who you are. You are not valuable because of what you do, but you are valuable because of who you are. You know, I've got a £20 note right here with a queen on the back of the £20 note. Now, how much is this worth? Go on, how much is it worth? Yep, you're right, £20. Now, how about if I scrumple it up in my hands? How much is it worth now? Exactly. Still worth £20. How about if I put it on the floor and I stamp on it? There you go. Not sure you should do that. This might be illegal, but hey-ho, no one's going to tell. Now, how much is it worth now? Correct. It's still worth £20. It's been crumpled. It's been scrunched. It's been stamped. It's been put into the floor. It's still the same value. That's true of you. No matter what life has done to you, folks, no matter what circumstances have done to you, you are no longer worthless. Excuse me. You are valuable. That's amazing. The final thing is this, in verse 13, having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance to the praise of his glory. I am no longer uncertain, wondering, anxious, but I am signed, sealed and pledged. There is powerful imagery here in these verses that Paul is writing He's talking about a legal transaction. There's a deal that's been done that's lawful. There's a deposit guaranteeing something to come into our lives. But, and there's a commercial transaction implies ownership. But there's also a royal transaction in, in, implicit in these verses. 
This is about a king and his authority. This is about security. This is about authenticity. God is saying he's put a deposit within us of his Holy Spirit guaranteeing an inheritance. This is like when you go into a furniture shop and you, you put a deposit down on a sofa. You know it's yours, but you haven't taken full delivery of it yet. Now listen, I'm not just a sofa to God. Because I've discovered that this word and this concept also means engagement ring. It's like God is saying, I've put a deposit guaranteeing something fuller is to come. But it's not a commercial transaction. It's not a sofa. This is a transaction out of love and out of passion. So you don't need to be uncertain, wondering and anxious about whether God loves you, about whether God has invested his Holy Spirit in you, about whether there are great things coming for you. You don't need to be uncertain because you are signed, sealed and pledged. Wow. Don't you just love God? He is amazing. He's amazing. And listen to how... The message puts some of these verses. Because of the sacrifice of the Messiah, his blood poured out on the altar of the cross. We're a free people, free of penalties and punishments, chalked up by all our misdeeds. And not just barely free either, abundantly free. He thought of everything, provided for everything we could possibly need, letting us in on the plans he took such delight in making. He set it all out before us in Christ, a long-range plan in which everything would be brought together and summed up in him everything in deepest heaven, everything on planet earth. It's in Christ that we find out who we are and what we are living for. Did you hear that? It's in Christ we find out who we are and what we're living for. Then the next verse, Paul says, and I pray that you get it, that you understand just who you really are, what your born identity really is, and then you will no longer be a slave to fear. You'll no longer be a slave to the voices, the logoria that goes around in your head. But you'll know exactly who you are. And when you know who you are, then you'll know how to live as a child of God. That is your born identity. And what's more, whatever happens in this world or in your world, you can know who's in charge. Right at the end, this chapter in the message says, All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a high, high on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments. That includes Europe. No name and no power exempt from his rule, not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all, has the final word on everything. And at the centre of all this, Christ rules the church. The church you see is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. Folks, why don't you stand with me and why don't we pray? Father, we thank you that you're an amazing God. And God, as we come into this incredible month of June, which is going to go Euro crazy, God, I thank you that we can go and we can enter into our world and we can vote and we can participate and we can be involved. But we don't need to do that from a basis of fear because we are no longer slaves to fear. We are children of God. And God, I thank you that our hope and our trust is not in the cross that we put on a piece of paper in a ballot box, but our hope and our trust is on the cross that you put on a hill called Calvary. So Father, I pray that once again today we will affirm that we have decided and we have committed and we know who we are and we are children of the King. In Jesus' name. Amen.